Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Options Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy and Sherry Edwards. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning. Good morning. It's it's such an incredibly beautiful morning here in Ohio. What's it doing in California, Richard? Uh, two days ago, I was on uh, Creek Watch. As li- regular listeners know, I live across the across my driveway is a creek that floods from time to time meaning I'm out there in hip boots, you know, sweeping water out of my driveway as fast as I can to keep my house from flooding. And this season, uh, we had most of our rain in three days, and the creek got up to about three quarters, but no actual flooding. Yay. And today it's going to be in the mid-70s, just like that. Wow. It teaches us to be on the ball, never knowing what to expect. And with that statement, welcome everybody to the show. We're happy that you could be with us and extremely happy because we have a very important discussion coming today and one that's very near to my heart because I have several grandchildren and several great-grandchildren that exhibit symptoms of autism and we've been able to help them. This is the National Autism Month and our guest today is one of our favorite types of persons. She's the founder of the National Autism Academy and the author of a new book we'll talk about. And the reason we ask her on the show is not only does she talk about issues, but she provides solutions and what we can do as people and parents to help the situation. And that's what we want to do here at the Institute of Bioacoustic Biology and Sound Health. We want to provide tools and solutions. Much, Many of you are probably um, old enough to remember when autism was blamed on the parents, especially the mother. That was so disgusting. And we've come a long, long way since then in terms of our views of autism. And our guest is going to even go further than anything I know about because of her new book, We are sponsored by the Institute of Bioacoustic Biology and Sound Health. Um, My own experiences have spurred me on, and we've talked about this on the show before, that we've created a software called Prevac, and it's really about pre-vaccination risk factors. We've been doing this for years. We've done over 300 um, diagnosed autism kids and found out some commonality. Um, commonalities, allergies, um, hematagglutinin, which we just uh, released the other day, and how quercetin works into all of this and the commonality for all the kids that we evaluated here through vocal profiling. Quercetin is the one that prepares people the most for vaccines. Um I'm thinking, oh, the other thing I needed to um, add to this, uh, I realize I have some ADHD qualities of my own, and it's taken some time for my family to accept that. We're really happy about what we do here. We give away software to, um, I don't know what to call it, vaccine damage autism um, people. We give away allergies, inflammation, 
super brain, which we named after Super Brain 2000 or Strander and Schroeder's book because they mention our, our um, protocols in there and what we've been able to do with these kids. So digestion and brain and inflammation and allergies, all of that go into one bundle. And our guest is going to share with us how she brings all of this uh, together. My, well, I have two short announcements, and then I'll shut up, Richard. Um, we approached Bill Gates about doing a pretest for kids, and they wrote me the nastiest letter. So that's not an approach they want to take. And the other thing, um, and I don't even know how to work this in just to say it, um, the vaccine, I've, in our case, we can trace some of the problems in our family back to um, back to vaccines. But I got a, an email from somebody who said that they are now going for the uh, animals, that they're seeing the writing on the wall about vaccines and humans. So now they're putting a lot of their money into going after wild animals and giving the animals vaccine. Boy, that's a lot of preparation, a lot of world ahead, because I think they're finally catching up with the fact that maybe not always, but certainly when we talk about hematoglutin and in the vaccines that cause leaky gut, there are certainly some issues there. And I feel like I'm rambling on. Um, there's a lot to talk about. Richard, you said you had one announcement, and I know you like to tell people about where to get this show right afterwards. So I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Uh, yes, I know this is going to be one of those shows from having read much of Jeannie's book and read a number of articles and being somewhere on the spectrum myself, even though people wouldn't know it now, um, that this is a show you're going to want to listen to and pass on to your friends. And the way to do that is about 15 minutes after we end the show, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and then click on the blog talk archive player tab, and the last five shows will be there. And you can also go to any of your favorite podcast aggregators. Uh, Pocket Cast is my favorite. It's an app you can use on, on the computer, on any phone, Apple or Android, and or Dogcatcher or iTunes or whatever, and search for Sherry Edwards and you'll see over 600 hours of shows, which blows my mind. And uh, this show will be there. The podcast aggregators are a little slower to get it, so it might take that minute, an hour or two, but you can also find it there. And you can also use uh, Stitcher is good because it's easy to listen to the show, and then if you want, pass it on to anybody right in the app. You can just email it to somebody. And it's going to be one of those shows. There's going to be a lot of really great information in here. And my announcement has to do, is, this is personal, although it talks about California in general, uh, but it has to do with a, a health issue in California, and particularly in the county I live in, Sonoma County, which is quite large. I don't know how many square miles it is, but it's a really big county, because I live 30 miles from the coast, a little over 30 miles, and, it, and the county goes all the way from Napa, which is 15 miles east of me, to about 35 miles west to the coast. 
and it's about as long as well. It's a big county with a huge industry of the wine industry. And uh, currently, uh, they just put out a report that in 2018, the Sonoma County Health Department Services put out a report saying that we have a uh, reporting noting that our childhood cancer rate is the fourth highest in California. And then cancer, cancer is the leading cause of death in all age groups. And it seems that Sonoma County um, is high in that level, and we have a lot of stuff sprayed on in the cause of growing grapes. Uh, there is a trend moving toward organics because they see the writing on the wall that that's the way to go. There are other food crops grown here as well, but really wine is the predominant crop in Northern California in terms of this county. Cannabis is a big crop, but that's further north. But they've never been pesticide-oriented. But this county is really, because they spray the fields, if you drive out very early in the morning, you'll see uh, during certain times of year when the vines are getting ready to bud, you'll see guys wearing full hazmat suits spraying sulfur into the air. People don't know it's sulfur, but that they're clouding and they do it early morning to avoid the wind, the, the blow-by. And if they're doing that, they're probably spraying other things. Uh, they're saying here in the article that 90% of the pesticides used in Sonoma County are on grapes. Uh, there's all sorts of scary numbers in here. So I'll post this. Oh, Roundup is in there. Let's not forget our friend Roundup. Approximately 77,000 pounds applied to 48,000 acres in Sonoma County. Mind-blowing. Okay, I'll stop. Makes me a little uh, nauseous to think about that. So I'll put that in chat. Now let's get to a really great conversation. Jeannie Beard is a thought leader in the autism arena. The founder of the National Autism Academy, a speaker, coach, consultant, and author of Autism and the Rest of Us, How to Sustain a Healthy, Functional, and Satisfying Life with a Person on the Autism Spectrum. The National Autism Academy's mission is to encourage, educate, and support parents, families, and caregivers of those with autism spectrum disorder. Jeannie takes a new approach to living life with an individual or loved one with autism, delivering hope through better understanding and an adjusted focus. Jeannie joins us to share her incredible insights into the thoughts, experiences, and challenges of those on the spectrum and the rest of us. Welcome, Jeannie. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So I'm going to jump in a little further than people might suspect, but this will open the door for your story of how you got here, is how was Dr. Tim Wahlberg such a tipping point for you and your son? Oh, my. Well, um, I have a son that was, my older son was diagnosed with autism at the age of 10, just before his 11th birthday. And um, prior to that time, I just thought I was a crummy parent. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't um, help my son. He was very anxious. He was very stressed. By the time we got the diagnosis, I could not get him to leave the house to get on the bus to go to school. School was, even in second grade, school was very stressful for him. He'd come home. I'd send him to school in a a brand-new T-shirt, and he'd come home and, He'd have holes chewed through the whole front of his T-shirt. I'd have to throw it away. Um, And so I knew that he was suffering. I knew my son was suffering, and he was struggling, and I couldn't figure out why, because for the most part, he seemed 
normal, you know. I mean, he 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 made eye contact. He hugged me. He you know he he listened to me when I talked to him, um, and I couldn't figure out you know what was going on. By the same token, he'd melt down when I'd ask him to tie his shoes. So you know, one minute he was okay, and the next minute, boy, he was just you know something was really going on. And I I kept thinking, I'm failing this child. Something's wrong here. I'm failing this child. And he had been diagnosed with ADHD um, in second grade, and we had been treating him for ADHD. So we'd been seeing a, psych- a, a child psychiatrist who'd been treating him for ADHD for, um, you know, four or five years. And suddenly when my son started into junior high school, uh, at 11 he was getting ready to go into junior high school, just the wheels came off the bus. I mean, he, he just he couldn't relate to people anymore he was angry all the time he was he was getting suspended from school because he was threatening uh you know he would just get mad and he'd say i'm going to kill you to some kid and of course you can't say that in school anymore so he was getting suspended and he's a good kid i couldn't figure out what was going on finally i broke down i was in tears one day when my son was just yelling at his brother and just (laughs) creating havoc all through the house and um and i and i sat down and i wrote the psychiatrist a letter in the heat of the moment pouring out my heart saying i can't do this i don't know what i'm doing wrong there's something this is happening and this is happening this is happening and i go to the psychiatrist with my son the next week and i give him this letter and i go look this is what i'm experiencing something's going on and <laughs> and the psychiatrist as he's walking me out the door says well you know i think so he says don't worry about this but i think it could be asperger's and he goes, when you look on the Internet, you're going to see that Asperger's is on the autism spectrum. He said, but don't worry about it. And he handed me my checkout paperwork, and I was <laughs> out the door. That was it. I didn't get any, you know, this isn't life-threatening, this isn't a, this is, or this is, or here's what you need to do next. I got no advice. Um, just I think that this is Asperger's. At that time, um, the, the definition Asperger's was still um, – available <laughs> it's not they've changed the the diagnostic criteria they don't use that phrase anymore they've lumped everyone into the category of autism autism spectrum disorder so um anyway so my son i i tried therapists i tried therapist after therapist i tried at least three trying to get my son some help for whatever this was this asperger thing and you know back in 2000 and six or five when this was, there was not a lot of information available on autism and Asperger's, a lot less than there is today. And so finally, I called that psychiatrist's office back, and I said to the guy, you have got to tell me where I can go with my son that I can get help, because all of these other therapists, they weren't making any difference. They weren't, they weren't addressing his anxiety. They weren't addressing my issues. They weren't making it better for him in school. They weren't, they weren't helping us get anywhere. So finally, um, that psychiatrist gave me the name Dr. Tim Wahlberg, and I'll never forget where I was. I was in the grocery store in the frozen food aisle the first time he called me back. I called and left him a message. He called me back, and from that minute forward, my life started to change because he began to explain to me every time, every week when we saw him, and by the way, every week when we saw him, I'd go there and I'd say, are you sure that my son has autism. Are you sure? And he'd say, yep, pretty sure. <laughs> I'd go back the next week. Are you sure that he's not just trying to get away with something? No, I'm pretty sure it's autism. Hmm. <laughs> and he was very patient with me. That went on for six months. But during those six months, he began to explain to me um, the, some of the things that I needed to know 
um, like your son processes information a little differently. And because he processes information differently, you know, that affects the way he sees the world. Okay, how, how do you mean? Well, and he would start to explain all of the things that today we teach at the academy. So over a period of six months as, as I'm learning and the things are growing, I kept saying to him, do you have this written down? I really, I need to read it. I need to study it. I need to understand it so I can really help my son. And he would say, well, you know, I'd really like to write it down, but it's, uh, I'm having a hard time getting it done because I see, peop- you know, I see uh, clients from 7 in the morning until 9 at night, and I just don't have time to, I've got a stack of notes. He pointed at a two-inch stack of notes on his desk. So I asked him over and over, over the next six months, about those notes. Finally, I said, give me the notes. I want to read the notes. If, I, if you don't have anything else, let me read the notes. And so I did. I read them twice. And then I outlined them, and then I brought it back to him. And I started asking questions and filling in the outline. And that went on for – he was so kind to me. He gave me as much time as I needed because ultimately what happened was that turned into his book. So I was part of the writing process for his book because he was explaining information to me. I was writing it down, and then I gave it all back to him, and he published it. And it's a book called Finding the Gray, which is available on Amazon. Um, and it's, it is a more clinical uh, discussion of autism than my book, which is really about what our experience is when we live with someone with autism. So that changed, he changed our world. My son is doing really well today. He's, he's uh, graduating from a career college. He's got a job offer. He, which, and a job is an awesome thing for someone with autism. If you've got a job, you, you've really overcome the biggest barriers if you can manage a job because then that gives you so much more freedom, freedom to you know, support yourself, freedom to have relationships, freedom to live independently, and so the job is a big deal. So that's where we are today. That's amazing. And what are some of the characteristics? I, I know we all sort of have a picture of an autistic, well, particularly Asperger's because of series like, mm, let's see, Parenthood, uh, the Good Doctor, I think, is the new one, the most recent one. Yeah. We have characteristics, yeah. but those are cinematic characteristics. Those aren't living with, in the real world, characteristics. What are some of the characteristics of someone who's diagnosed with, you know, with autism spectrum disorder? And is it really well, a disorder? A, but that's a separate question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, it, it is definitely not a disease. It is not mental illness. Um, you know, so it, it is... It is the, they call it a disorder. Truthfully, I don't. We don't look at it as something that's bad or wrong or broken. We look at it as different. It's a different way of processing the world. Um, so, you know, a child that's born with autism is born with hypersensitivity to the environment. So, their brain, in order to manage the hypersensitivity, their brain is developing in the direction of trying to screen out that difficult input that difficult sensory input their their brain is trying to manage it trying to make it more comf- make themselves more comfortable trying to trying to understand the world and and sort of line it up in in nice <laughs> nice you know black and white clean linear um ways so that so that they can make it easier to understand and they're not they're not doing sort of the circular thinking that's the executive functioning piece, the piece where, we're, where they're taking in data. A, a child born not on the spectrum is 
putting everything in their mouth, they're touching it, they're, they're taking everything in in their environment, their brain is growing and, and developing in the direction of incorporating new information rather than blocking out new information. And that's really how the difference begins. So it's, it's not wrong and it's not bad and it's not broken and it's not sick, it's just different, different processing. So <laughs> that was kind of the second piece of the question. Um, but, yeah, you know, there's, I, mean, I think the good doctor is something that's been really a positive thing for people with autism because it is showing someone in the main, you know, making his way in the mainstream world. And, yes, it is glammed up for Hollywood. It is not, you know, I, no doctor, of course, is going to solve every case and be the hero on every show, you know, in every case. But um, I think that they, they're, they're representing an individual that is fairly um, severely impacted. A lot of people with autism today, you wouldn't know that they're on the spectrum. A lot of people appear, you know, they don't present with those kinds of, of specific physical issues that he ha- you know, that he shows on the good doctor, looking around in the air all the time and, and wringing his hands and that kind of thing. Although there are people that, you know, I mean, that's why they call it a spectrum because it's, it goes all the way from people who you can't see anything to people who are unable to function in the world because they're so, uh, so severely impacted by the autism. Well, and that's why I was sort of early on, I, I said something that people wouldn't expect it now, but I was, as a child, I was somewhere in some spectrum. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it was, but I mean, I was removed. I had the classic sort of gaze aversion, and I I moved a direction. I had the freedom, fortunately, to move a direction to be, get into photography. And so I spent a lot of time alone. I spent a lot of time behind the camera. So I was able to observe and be slightly removed at social events because there was always the photographer. And mm-hmm. that, was, uh, that was sort of a safe space for me. It, I, don't know, I didn't know that then, but I know that now, that that allowed mm-hmm. me to be a participant, be, but out of, you know, out of the limelight. Even though, as a photographer, you're incredibly featured. It's a weird thing mm-hmm. when you're photographing a wedding or an event or doing, I, I did photography for newspapers and for magazines, even while I was in high school. And so you're really quite featured because you're telling people what to do and organizing them, but you're still behind the veil of the camera. Mm -hmm. So it was something that I, so because I'm so verbose now, good grief, I'm making up for it, um, that people didn't didn't really know that because I Mm -hmm. seem now like, oh, just a regular guy. And I am. Mm -hmm. But that's how I, you know, angled it. And as I said, Mm -hmm. fortunately, I had the team around me meaning my teachers, and my parents were just sort of like, I don't know, he's really smart, let him go, in a positive yeah. way. Um, yeah. So it, 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 I, I've, I've hung out with people who are have Asperger's or have ADHD. I didn't ever have any of the ADHD things in the sense of the tappy toe or that kind of un, you know, bridled hyperkinetic quality, but I definitely... Right. Like, I was comfortable with cacophony. I was a chef. So I, mm-hmm. when I would go into a restaurant and I would be cooking, the cacophony settled me down. It made me yeah. so active that I was very calmed by that in an odd way. And I think a lot of yeah. chefs are on the spectrum in some way because that's such a different environment for most people. And I know a lot of chefs who are, like, at ease when they're chefing, even though it's madness. Right. 
Richard, I can see that how you being uh, on the radio is part of that too, because you're still behind your camera. You don't like to be out <laughs> in public, but you certainly love radio. So good solution, perfect solution. Thank you. Good workaround. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, are there yeah, other? What are some of the other? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that you know, as far as the the, the cacophony in the in the in the kitchen, um, you know that it's very. It, when you understand the neurology behind the autism, very often they, you know, people with autism, they neurologically, not emotionally, this is neuro, on a neurological level, they get stuck. They get stuck, and they need they need additional stimulation for their brain to reach the point where it it recognizes that the stimulus coming in is not a threat and it's not an issue, and then it can return to calm, return, you know, habituation. It can habituate to the noise, to be comfortable with it. But, it's, you know, they don't, they don't reach homeostasis. The, for you and I, or for myself, when I, I'm not on the spectrum, when I put my clothes on in the morning, I can feel them on my body, but in a matter of three seconds, I don't even notice them anymore, and I'm able to habituate to that, um, to the sense of the, the, the sensory having clothes touching my body. But uh, but other people, people with autism, are not able to habituate to things like that. And and so they need additional stimulation to get their brain to the point where it can return to calm and, and habituate to the environment around them. So, th- so the fact that all that noise was calming to you would be would be indicative. I mean, that's the same reason we give stimulants to kids to kids who have ADHD because it raises their their sensory input to the point where they can recognize um, their brain at a neurological level can recognize that it's time to calm down. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah. That's what stimming is. Yeah. If you see someone with autism and they're rocking or they're chewing or they're, or they're tapping or they're banging their head on the wall, that's adding additional stimulation that's going to help their neurology help their brain work up to the point where it's going to recognize that it can become calm again. It's going to release inhibitory neurons so it can become calm again. I'd like to step back a a little bit. I love where we're going, but uh, we have a question from the audience that uh, you described your son, but did you identify what caused the the escalation of symptoms? (laughs) I, I can tell you what the uh, psychiatrist told me. And, and remember, this was 11 or 12 years ago. It was before there was so much information available on autism. It was before it was in the news all the time and, and, and sort of on people's radar. So I had no idea when, when that doctor said Asperger's. I said, what? What are you talking about? I know I'd never heard the word before. So um, what, what the psychiatrist explained to me was that was that people with autism that are very high-functioning, my son is very high-functioning, he's got 128 IQ, so he's really smart, he had a lot of good support, and he had the ability to to compensate in a lot of ways. And so uh, the psychiatrist said, when you have an individual like that, very often it's not until their world and their life becomes complicated enough and the social interactions with with other people, the social interactions with the other students at school become complicated enough. Now there's teasing, there's boys and girls, there's <laughs> changing, changing classrooms, different classes, lockers, writing down your homework assignments. You know, he went into junior high school, and that was a very uh, 
big step up in terms of the complication of his life. And that was the point that the autism became apparent to the, to the psychiatrist. Prior to that, we were managing well enough that it, it wasn't, we, we just couldn't see it. Um, so that was the explanation when I, when I sort of landed on the psychiatrist, why the, you know, heck didn't you tell me this eight, eight years ago when we came here the first time or something. So um, he, he explained to me that, that with higher functioning people, it's hard to recognize and it's hard to diagnose. It's still really hard to get a diagnosis today. I talk to 20 moms a week and half of them tell me, a very long diagnosis story, or they say we're still waiting for the diagnosis, or, or you know, you know, nobody believes us that there's something really wrong, particularly with the high functioning kids. Mm-hmm. And I've I've heard you say in studying for the show, I can't remember if I heard or read because it all sort of blended together. Um, I've heard or read you say the autism of today. And I'm wondering from that, is autism today different than it was when it was diagnosed, let's say, 30 or 40 years ago? In my opinion, yes. <laughs> now, I don't know um, if on a medical, I mean, there's no way to know if on a medical level it really is. But autism at one time, you know, if, if you said autism in the 1950s, the image was of a child rocking in a corner, drooling and chewing and unable to communicate at all. That was sort of the idea uh, behind autism back then, or that was the conception of it. Um, and in children, high-functioning autism was not being diagnosed. Those kids, I think, were either called bad kids or they were called bullies or they were, they were called <laughs> bipolar or, or you know, um, some other maybe ODD uh, or, or some other diagnosis, they weren't being diagnosed with autism. And today, people with high, more high-functioning difficulties are being diagnosed and being given, and I, I mean, people call it a label, and I, I kind of react to that because, you know, if you're left-handed, you're called left-handed, and, and it's, not a, it's not a label, it's, it's, it's a fact. And autism is a fact. It's not a, it's not a value judgment. It's not a, you know, not a, nothing bad about the person so yeah you can call it a label but you know it's a fact of life and so people who have autism who are working with a neurology that's different than everyone else's um you know we need to acknowledge that's that's who they are and what what they're you know what they're dealing with but um i do think that there is more i think some of the difference today is the is the environment you know in in the year 1900 if you wanted to invite someone for dinner you either wrote a letter and mailed it to them or you got on your horse and you rode across the you know countryside and you went to their house and you said would you like to come for dinner or you or you you know <laughs> took maybe took the train and asked invited them over or whatever so the speed of information i mean i recently retired from a sales career a 30 year sales career and when i started selling we had we had phone calls and we had mail. Then we got faxes. Then we got email. And today, you know, when I retired, if I was talking to a client on the phone, if I didn't have my proposal in their inbox before we hung up, I was late. So, you know, the, the speed at which we're required to process information and to manage information and the amount of information that comes in, 
you know, I'm in 1940, if uh, you were standing in front of a, a shop that sold TVs, there was a TV, maybe it was on, and it would be fuzzy, and then something would come in and go out. If you had, if you had at that point said someday you'll have a TV the you know size of a wristwatch and you'll be able to watch things across the world as they're happening, people would have said that's crazy. So the speed of information that's delivered and the amount of information that's delivered to us today is so much it's so i mean it's exponentially larger than we had you know in 1900 and i think that is part of the reason we're seeing more autism because it is impacting it's it's making people with autism i don't want to say stand out but it it's making them it's making us able to see that they're having a difficult time processing information where before we maybe didn't see that maybe they called you know their little brother Billy slow in you know 1900. They said, well, he's kind of slow or whatever. But they didn't see the kinds of difficulties that we're seeing today, and I I think that's really partly a function of the culture we live in. Well, I think that it's possible sense. that yes, that makes sense. And one of the other things that comes to mind is that I had a grandmother that lived to be 106, so that meant that she came from. As a child, she crossed the United States. She died in the, a long time ago. And so she came across the United States in an actual wagon, not by uh-huh. choice. That was the mode of transportation. And they came uh-huh. from Michigan to Utah. Uh-huh. And she lived to be 106 because she was tough as nails and because her entire life she unintentionally, this is my view, she unintentionally ate an organic diet because back uh-huh. then they didn't know what organic was. That's just how they grew right. things. It wasn't like, right. ooh, it's organic. It's just, you right. know, you go out. And so back to back to your scenario of riding the horse to your neighbors, taking two days to ride a horse to go, want to come for dinner? And riding back. It's like, right. you know, you just, you were eating real food and it wasn't polluted with, you know, the total toxic load as compared to today. Yep. yep. Is just stunning. It's a, It's the same thing, as you said, exponentially, our technology I mean, <laughs> I was chuckling when you said facts, like, oh, my God, facts. I remember when facts was like, wow, I faxed somebody. And now it's, yeah, right. really, facts? You know, yeah. facts was amazing. It translate, you know, it was like rocket science to be able to fax somebody a document while you were talking to them, and they'd pull it out of the machine, and it was like, yay. And now, yeah. as you say, when you're talking to somebody, you know, when I'm working with somebody to schedule a show or try and find it, I just, you know, I email them and like in a minute they might email me back. It's a miracle. So the idea yeah. that our total environmental load of stuff, whether it be, you know, possibly like what I was talking about before the show, where we have toxins in the environment in which I live, those seem like those could also contribute to triggers that would cause Absolutely. somebody to have a reaction. Backstage before the yeah. show, we talked briefly about a, a medical doctor, Doris Rapp, who wrote a book in the, I'll say, 80s, who I had the privilege of interviewing a couple of times, wrote a book called Is This Your Child? And she's written other books as well. And she'd done research looking at environments with children in classrooms that were cleaned with regular cleaning compounds, you know, every, whatever available, especially back then in the 80s, who knows what they were using. And then would observe that on film and then would go into another classroom that had been cleaned with regular, with clean, like, you know, vinegar and baking soda kind of thing. And observe the differences. And just that alone 
reduce the amount of sort of like tappy toe, you know, the potential neurotoxins. So in our total toxic load now, I can't imagine how that might contribute to somebody who has a sensitivity or, you know, can get hung up. And I don't mean that as a derogatory, but can get distracted with like how a material feels on their skin because maybe they're a little hyper neurologically. And so Mm -hmm. then to have a toxin added to that, I get cranky. Mm -hmm. I mean... And and we also don't know what the what the real effect of of generational uh, you know the 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 generations you know the over generations of having people you know now the children that are being born today are being born of to children who were who were you know had had a have much heavier toxic load than pre, the previous generation so we don't know that could be compounding it too that could be part of what is is creating some of the rise in the autism. It's a theory, but yeah, it's a good theory. I like it. I'll jump on that theory. I <laughs> I do want to jump back for just a moment and ask about the um, where is that? I was going to ask about when they removed Asperger's as a diagnosis. Was that yeah. a good thing? Was that a bad thing? Was that a what was that? In your opinion, I think it was an insurance thing. In my opinion, <laughs> um, in May oh. of 2013, they uh, they uh, published a new diagnostic manual. Uh, the DSM-5 came out in May of 2013, and at that time, they they took away the um, the diagnosis of, of Asperger's, and they put everyone. And, and there's a few other diagnoses that are not, you know, not as commonly known. But they put everyone together under, under something called uh, under the aut- uh, autism spectrum disorder. They call everything autism spectrum disorder. We're the only country in the world that did that. Um, you know, other countries still use the phrase Asperger's and still refer to people with Asperger's as you know high functioning autism. Um, I really, you know, think that it was probably some you know bureaucratic insurance issue. Uh, I'll tell you this, Dr. Wahlberg and the other um the other experts that I see who are who are diagnosing and have have to deal with the criteria said nobody asked me if I wanted to get rid of it <laughs> because he, he definitely feels that it you know it's a very legitimate diagnosis. So yeah. I wanna I, 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 I wanna, go, ahead. go ahead. I wanna jump in about the environmental thing because it reminds me of a little kid that showed up at our doors and they warned me that he was dangerous and I should meet him at the door. So we have big double doors. And the first thing this little kid did is Grandpa brought him in. He started pounding on my thighs. And I reached down, which is a mistake, to try to stop him, and he broke my little finger. Hmm. Uh, so we went on to see him, and it ended up that he was highly sensitive, allergic even, to corn. And he didn't speak. He was just very destructive. But after they changed his diet, he was a regular kid who would sit and read a book. So I think that environmentally we need to test these kids, and they're the canaries of what's going to go on with the rest of us. He ended up, his mother was a nurse, he ended up being a very regular kid if they could keep him off of any kind of corn product. So does diet uh, have a anything or a lot nothing to do with some of these kids behaviors is they're getting brain poisoned 
you know, I, as I said, I talk to 20 moms a week, um, you know, be, in, in my work with the academy, and um, most parents are trying at, to some degree to manage the diet, but it's very diff- that's a very difficult chore for, for a lot of parents. And some people do report that, there are, that they see uh, improvements. There are also people who say, I've done the whole diet thing, it didn't make a difference. Uh, and I know Temple Grandin and Dr. Wahlberg have both said to me um, that you know if that they do think that diet um, can. I mean, anybody who's eating a better diet and feeling better, you know, your brain is clearer, things are better, you, you function better. We're, that's true for all of us. Um, but as far as really changing the autism, it it probably doesn't really affect ninety uh, percent of the people that have autism doesn't really change the autism it may make them feel better and they may function better but um that that doesn't mean they don't still have um the autism again you know i'm not saying autism is something bad it's just a different way of processing and when we understand as family members as parents and as as a global community when we understand what that means and how that impacts the individual who's thinking that way then then we can support them in living their best life and and delivering their gifts <laughs> because you know if you look historically if you look if you look it up online the people that were thought to to be autistic the list is all of the brightest and the best um you know Albert Einstein Thomas Jefferson Bill Gates Jim Henson you know i mean you can through the ages there've been so many people with autism that were so so successful and so creative Hans Christian Andersen, Michelangelo, um, in in every field. So I don't know. And I, I want to jump. Been... I want to jump for a moment to uh, in that in that spectrum. I can't help but use the word. Um, the show with the I think it's called the Good Doctor, with a doctor mm-hmm. who has Aspergers. But there are some other characteristics. I think the tricky part about the Good Doctor to me is that the character has Asperger's, but I believe that he's also a genius in the character. And they sometimes make the blending of those two together is a little tricky. Could you talk about that character a little bit? Sure, sure. I, 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 he, is a, he is a really, obviously, a, you know, a savant-like character. And um, only 10% of the autistic population, according to studies, only 10% of the autistic population is as a savant, uh, like Rain Man, you know the the um, the character that uh, played um, in the in the movie back with Tom Cruise. You know he was he was a mathematical he was a numbers savant. There are calendar savants who can you can tell them you know they can say what day was June seventh, nineteen twenty six, and they'll you know they'll tell you oh it was a Tuesday. <laughs> um, so there are people, a percentage, a small about ten percent of people with autism who are savants. And about 50% of people who are savants are considered to be autistic. So, um, so there is there is an overlap in in the two, you know, the savants and the and the people with autism. But it's not everybody, and they are portraying him to be a little more savant-like. So I. I I understand what you're saying. And I think that there's some very subtle things in that show that people aren't, probably aren't picking up. I don't know if you – there was an episode where 
he came home and he he something traumatic had happened for him during the day, and he asked his friend to break into the pool so he could float in the pool. And the last scene was him just laying on his back floating in the pool. And his friend said, "Aren't you going to like swim laps or something? What are you what are you doing? What are you doing laying there in the pool?" And he said, "I'm understanding." And that was a very subtle message because what he was doing was he was using some sensory stimulation to help him process what had happened to him during the day. I got it right away. It made total sense to me, but I'm sure it probably went, you know, went right by most people who don't know a lot about autism. But he was, he was actually providing the sensory stimulation that his body needed so that he could process everything that had happened. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting Einstein. show, a very interesting show. Mm-hmm. Einstein really liked pigeons. Einstein liked to sit on benches and be with pigeons. So I think that was one of that's one of the observations I always had about him was that same. I think it was a a place of processing for him, mm-hmm. where you know he liked to sit on the park bench and think about E equals M C squared for God's sakes, <laughs> yeah. right. or you know right. like whatever. And pigeons were quite calming to him. Were quite in a certain way they. They soothed him. They somethinged him. So I, yeah. you know, I saw that that episode, and I had that same like, oh yeah, I remember that feeling um, of you know being soothed, of being you know stepping into the noise of the kitchen, and suddenly feeling like, okay, I'm good now. This is this is yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's awesome. And so, you know, do I... you think? Do you think that with uh, autism there is some I'll call them gifts. You know, some of these things, is it possibly something about the neural pathways? Something opens up another pathway because of some characteristics of autism? Do Not I, all I autistics have gifts, but many seem to. I absolutely think they have gifts. Absolutely. They have, you know, if <laughs> I heard someone say this once. If the rest of us are spotlights, they're a laser beam. And a laser beam can accomplish something a spotlight just can't accomplish. So I absolutely think they're good. You know, uh, Thomas Edison, it took him 10,000 tries to make the light bulb. Who who would have that kind of tenacity? Who would have that kind of stick-to-itiveness? Who would have that single... You know, single focus of purpose that that someone you know that it took to invent the light bulb to believe that it was possible to see something that to believe in something that had never existed and then to be able to focus on it and continue until they finally until they finally got it. I absolutely think those are gifts, Um, you know, and the ability to to find anomalies in data. You know, the cybersecurity issues of today are are people are you know, loved ones with autism are going to be awesome in those environments because they're going to be able to, um, you know, to find the the difficulties and, and the, the anomalies in the data and, and to be able to support the kind of security that we're going to need going forward. Yeah, I think there's a lot of gifts and there's a lot of ways that they can use their talents um, because they don't necessarily um, – see the world the way the rest of us do. So they don't they don't have some of the presumptions presumptions in their mind that it's just this way, this is just the way it is. They they have an ability to think outside of the box. That's why there have been so many creative geniuses that were thought to be on the autism spectrum. So I definitely think that yeah. that it, that every child, every individual that we can support in 
being comfortable in their own skin. <laughs> and to me, that's what it's, that's the only thing I want for my son. I want him to be comfortable in his own skin and enjoy his life. And so mm-hmm. the more we can provide an environment around these individuals that will support them in doing that and understand that they're doing that and it looks a little different than what we're used to, the more gifts we're going to see delivered to the world. I've hung out with a more than typical amount of coders and programmers, and I have a friend who was, uh, she's still somewhat in the industry, but not as directly, in the coding, in the programming industry for big companies. And she has that very much like the character on The Good Doctor, but in her mm-hmm. her arena, it's a it's the coding map, and she sees the context of the flow of the code in her mind's eye, right. so that she can she can see that when she's coding. I mean, this is without writing. I mean, she does eventually do it, but when she actually sits down to do the coding, it's already mapped out in a certain way, so that she mm-hmm. can actually go down the code stream and see that like, okay, if that if I do that, this goes over there. That's wrong. If I do that, this goes there and does that. And it was always amazing to watch her. To, she would, you know, do a little bit of doodling and make some notes in the computer and, you know, kind of figure things out. But it was not by trial and error. It was by mapping it out in her brain. And she was working on restructuring the tracking system for PG&E. So it was, a, I can't use that word, big project is all I'll say, really big. Mm-hmm. So she'd mm-hmm. talk about it, she'd talk about it, and sometimes we'd be talking back and forth. And she'd just all, and then she'd sit down and like just write it out for hours, you know, like maybe four or five hours. She'd be coding, and then she'd run it, you know, do a practice. And so it's, it's. I've been with people who are like that, who have that amazing, you know, it's a. I'll call it a vision because somehow they see it in their mind's yeah. eye, or they sense it, or they what, and it's an amazing thing. I mean, it's really, wow. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's quite a gift. And she has some other areas where she's not so good. She may be a little terse right. in her communication sometimes. But once you know her, right. you just know that that's right. part of her makeup. And you don't judge her because she's a little snippy. I can be a little snippy when I'm in the kitchen. Right. Um, so, you know, we all get snippy. <laughs> Who doesn't get snippy? Right. Right. Um, well, and ultimately, I, you know, autism is a social disability. That is ultimately, you know, the bottom line because everything else, you know, people with autism, mo- not, I mean, everyone's different. Every person is unique and there's a broad spectrum. But for the most part, what we see is that is that the ultimate difference in children that are autistic, that are, you know, diagnosed young, a lot of them, even my son has has been able to overcome many of the challenges and fit into the world, but there's still the social disability piece. There's still he still is uncomfortable, and you know he he wants things spelled out for him completely. For you know certain certain requests I make, if I make a, a request that's very um, abstract, what do you want for dinner? That's too big a request. The first question I always get back is, what are my choices? But if I say, do you want chicken or fish? He'll pick. If I say, do you, you know, um, you know, do you want, do you want, um, you know, a salad for dinner? He can say yes or no. But it, it, people with, I mean, that it, there's some functional difficulties that arise because of the way uh, an individual's with autism's mind work. They're very linear and very compartmentalized and very straightforward. You know, straightforward. So when we speak to them and we use more linear language and we use um, less abstract language and we're very specific and, and you have to detail 
both sides very often you have to say if you want to go to the you know to the social event on Wednesday night you have to finish your homework on Wednesday afternoon and you and I both know that means that if you don't finish it you don't get to go but to, with a child with autism you, you have to say and if you don't finish your homework you don't get to go otherwise they're going to say okay I'm ready to go and you're going to say did you finish your homework and you're going to you say no or they, you say to them, they'll say no I didn't finish my homework and then then they're they're going to say you say you got to stay home. They'll be like you didn't tell me that. I didn't know that because their ability to infer information and sort of think in a circular way is is very often impaired. And so we have to be very linear and very clear and not abstract in order for them to have the best chance of gaining our full meaning. Otherwise, meaning part of the meaning can get lost very easily. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, that's, that's wanna, what we you know we talk about in in our trainings. Yeah, that's, that's really excellent. Answer. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. I can see how. And I want to I want to jump I want to jump slightly, and up, then I have a question from the audience. Oh, go ahead, Sherry. I said I can see how that caused not knowing that one little piece right there caused a lot of problems in our family. Even if you ask. Um, can you tell me what time it is? The answer is yes. They don't mm-hmm. infer. They really <laughs> want to know what time it is. Mm-hmm. That that yeah. was just yeah. an epiphany for me. Awesome. Yeah. Go and ahead. I think that that goes to, I, I do have an audience question, but I, this is so perfect in the flow. In your book, in Chapter 3, you really, I think this is such an important pa- chapter for people, and I think it's worth us talking about for a couple of minutes, is the chapter title is Separating the Person from the Ism. Mm-hmm. I think that's, and that's just in what we're talking about. That's so important. Could you talk about that just a little bit more? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it sort of came from the, from the whole idea of, of, you know, dealing with alcoholism because people who are, who are living with someone that's alcoholic, become, they begin to understand that, that the ism isn't the person. Um, and while, while I don't want to say that, <laughs> that, there is an, that there's a person inside, the, you know, covered up by the autism, because the autism is part of who the person is, and it, again, not bad, not wrong, just part of who the person is. But when we can recognize from our social perspective our expectations of, how people are going to treat us, how they're going to respond to us, the reciprocity in life, the, the, the flow of life. When we live with someone that's undiagnosed, we don't have those things. And when we, can, when we begin to understand the autism and we understand that there are specific reasons that are driving their behavior and driving the way they think and that it's not personal, it can make a huge difference in your experience of living with someone with autism, particularly if you're married to them, particularly if you don't, you know, if you've got, there's so many moms I talk to and they say, yeah, once my son was diagnosed, I start, I'm starting to think maybe my husband's on the spectrum. That happens all the time. So if you're out there and you're thinking that, you're probably right. And that leaves us in a place where we need to understand the difference because most of these people, most of these individuals with autism are 
are, are smart, they're wonderful, they're loving, they're caring. They have the same emotional needs the rest of us have. They have the same experience the rest of us have. They just, there's just one thing different about them. That's the way they're processing data, the way they're, the architecture of their brain is working, and that's having all of these other effects. So I think for, when I was talking about separating the, the autism from the person, separating that ism piece, what I was talking about was recognizing that that these are whole, wonderful individuals that are dealing with one specific um, challenge. I mean, it's like being left-handed in a right-handed world. All the rest of us are, are right-handed, and so it's easy for us to accomplish things. Their natural way is left-handed, and and it's hard to do that. What if what if left-handedness were socially unacceptable? And every time you you know you're left born left-handed, not something you created, born left-handed. Every time you went to reach for something with your left hand, someone shouted at you, "Don't do that. That's wrong. That's bad. That's wrong. That's, don't do that." And every time you you tried to um, you know write something down, you go to school and you pick up the pencil with your left hand, and the teacher's correcting you, "No, that's wrong. Do it in the do it the other way." And the other way, you just can't really quite manage it. You know, I mean, that's that's kind of the experience. I mean, don't I think? What what if communication were all done with your right hand? If communication were all done with your right hand and your left hand, and now you can't even communicate as effectively as other people. How frustrating would that be? How painful would that be? How how confusing would that be if you were a child and someone keeps telling you you're doing something wrong when what you're doing is what comes naturally to you? And so I I mean, I think that if we can begin to recognize that this isn't something broken about someone and that we can that we can see that they're a whole wonderful human being with this this one difference then we can you know and, and that their behavior that's the part that that's hard for us because their social behavior is not what we expect it's not as reciprocal it's not it's not as open. I mean, the good doctor is a great example. Uh, no one around him thought he could do the job because they don't, they don't like the way he communicates. He's very upfront. He says what's on his mind. These things are not considered socially acceptable, and that's how, how autism becomes a social disability. But when we can sort of understand the whole picture, um, we can see that this, is, that this is a person and that the autism, the ism, is creating these specific challenges. So for me, that was a very empowering way to, uh, particularly to look at my son, to know that he is, he's whole and he's complete and he's wonderful and he has gifts and we just have to, we just have to figure out the, the specific additional hurdles he has because he's, <laughs> because he's, you know, left-handed in a right-handed world. And, that's so important. That's so good. Um, I'm I'm surprised to find we're moving toward the end. Uh, I knew it was going to be a, you know, information-filled show. Is there, is there one piece of advice that you would give to parents? If you could reduce it to, I'm not saying you try to reduce your whole book, but is there like one tip, or as particularly as a parent, one like, here, here's a tip. Or, or is it really that it may be the ism? It may be the ism thing is so important. Yeah, I, I, you know, I it, it's. I mean, I could give. I could probably give twenty tips. I mean, I, I did. I just. I did give you a couple of communication tips today. But mm-hmm. I, I think the if you're a parent and you have a child on the spectrum, 
the fastest path to success for your child is when you have a very deep understanding of what is happening neurologically with your child, how that's influencing the way their brain works, how that the way their brain works is influencing what they're thinking and how what they're thinking is influencing their behavior. Because if you just try to put a Band-Aid on the behavior, you're not going to you're not going to deal with, you're not really going to support them in developing the functionality and the comfort with themselves that they're going to need to be, um, to live independent, social, full lives. When you begin to work with them, not only just the behavior, but also help them understand their neurology and understand their thinking. As I said before, people with autism are very linear in their thinking. So when we can begin to help them see that the world is more than black and white, that the world has all the shades of gray. And we, I mean, in the academy, that's what we're teaching parents is how to do interventions with their children so that they can begin to have their children see and, and create that neural flexibility because their, their mind by itself is not going to have the interconnectivity unless we help them develop it. And they're very capable of developing it. Um, and, and so when we work with them in that in in this different way, and when when I learned everything that I learned from Dr. Wahlberg, it categorically changed the way I saw my son, the way I saw his future, the things I expected. And we all know that you know what we expect is what we create. So I needed I needed that change because I was worried that maybe he would, uh, you know, end up sitting in the corner rocking and chewing. And and so I had to really change my beliefs about autism and I had to change the direction. So I, if you're a parent, that's really what I recommend. That is exactly why I founded the National Autism Academy, was to take what Dr. Wahlberg taught me and make it available for people all over the world right from their own living room. Um, and and uh, I hope that, I you know, we've, we've got... A lot of active students right now, and and they all are reporting that their world is changing. So I, I really think that the parent is sort of the been the missing link in autism treatment for a long time. You know, as and speech language pathologists are awesome, occupational therapy is awesome, physical therapy is awesome, traditional therapy is awesome as long as the person understands the autism. Because if they don't understand the autism, they're just putting a bandaid on the behavior. That to me is in isn't the answer, and unfortunately, there are so few therapists that are really trained. Um, it, you know, when our parents leave our trainings, they know more than some of the therapists that that are out there working with kids. So, um, I really think that's I really think that's the answer. The parent is the is the important piece in in mm. particularly if the children are younger. The parent's the important piece. Mm-hmm. And how do people work? Do people work with you, or do you suggest people go immediately to the nationalautismacademy.com and start reading there? Well, um, if you if you go to nationalautismacademy.com, uh, you're going you're not you're not going to be able to miss me because um, I usually ta- <laughs> I talk to every student that comes into our trainings. At some point, I have a one-on-one with every student. Um, that's in our training because I want to because I want to you know I want to understand what their challenges are and I want to support them and I per- still personally run all of the live calls we have a couple of live calls a week um, we have you know online and recorded material from Dr. Wahlberg and we have 
Q&As with Dr. Wahlberg, which that alone is, is worth the price of admission. He's, he's very, he's awesome. Um, but, um, yeah, I, so, so uh, if you want, you, you can, my email uh, address is on the website. You can email me directly. We also have a, one of the best ways to get involved is we have a, a free parent assessment on our website or on our Facebook page, and if you take the parent assessment, um, you're going to learn some things about where you're at and what you feel you know and what you feel you don't know, and that will automatically um, generate a phone call from someone at the academy. We reach out to everybody that contacts us um, because supporting one another as parents is important. This is hard stuff, and and every parent, every mom particularly that I've ever talked to has someone in her life who's telling her if she just parented better, everything would be fine. And so, Mm. you know, moms have someone criticizing them, telling them they're the problem, telling them that, um, you know, that that if they only provided more tough love, if if they were only more disciplined, if they were only more strict, then everything would be fine, and particularly with our high functioning kids. And that's that's not true. That's just not true because you can do all the traditional parenting discipline strategies in the world and you're not going to help your autistic child overcome the challenges that are part of autism. <laughs> they they need help under our kids need help. It's like they're it's like they're born on a on an island uh, not of their own making, and they don't know how to get off. And we have to build the bridge for them. We have to show them how to how to manage what what God gave them, or what the universe gave them, or what they were born with, uh, so that they can be, you know, live happy lives and 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 be effective and and survive in our culture such that it is. You know, I I would love it if our culture could change to meet them part way. And and I work on that. That's why that's why I have these conversations. <laughs> On Sunday morning, because I, I, I'm hoping that the world is going to begin to understand autism as not a bad thing, but something that's different and that and that's worth supporting. And at this point, two percent uh, of boys now are almost two percent of boys are being diagnosed with autism today. So it, this is no longer, you know, one in ten thousand children. This is a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And what is the name of your Facebook page? Our Facebook page is National Autism Academy at Facebook.com. Okay, great. National Autism Academy. Yeah. Come and join us. Come and join us. We love love having people in there. Come to our website. We have a lot of free support and, you know, different things on our website that people are welcome to as well. There's a lot of great information at the National Academy. Go ahead. I I, I have a gift for your listeners, too, just for you. I created something new. If you go to www.naabooks.com, so the book's plural, naabooks.com, you can download a free copy of my book and a free copy of Dr. Wahlberg's book. I just put this together for your audience. That's wow. incredible. Thank you. Yeah. That's yeah. fabulous. I have to go yeah, now and so- download the books. <laughs> yeah, please, please download both books. It's just a PDF copy. I'm sorry I can't give you a Kindle copy, but we don't we're we're, we're not quite to that technology point. But um, yeah, both of both of our books are there, and you'll be able to see uh, the similarities in the relationship between both books. So great, that's wonderful. We'll have to add yeah. that to the show notes. Definitely. Thank you so much. That was a uh, great conversation, and really, it's it's a vital information. 
sometime we'll do a whole show just about the Silicon Valley and how it would be good for them <laughs> to be understanding that some people yeah. perhaps like Mark Zuckerberg are on the spectrum. That would help people understand some of the communication styles. But that's yeah. a different show. I would, <laughs> like to read some, I would like to read something from the, your Facebook. Okay. It's, uh, a lady named Christine. I've learned more ways to help my son in two weeks since I've been with NAA than in the past five years with paraprofessionals. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm spreading the word. Thank you awesome. so much for that and helping all of these people. It It is my pleasure. Really, it is. It's a wonderful mission. Thank you so much, Jeannie. And everybody have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you on Tuesday. Okay, everybody. Bye-bye. Later. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.